Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Hello people, it's the beginning of 2020 and I wish you all a great and successful year. The biggest news from my side is that I will go to Zimbabwe and Botswana this spring to look out for and meet with fellow Bitcoiners and come back with interesting facts and stories about life and Bitcoin usage in these countries. My goal is not only to come back with interesting stories on how Bitcoin is supporting people and businesses, but also to donate the parts for a Raspberry Blitz to each community so they can set up their own Bitcoin and Lightning nodes. If you like this idea and my trip in general, then please donate for it. I made a Telecoin fundraiser page for this purpose. You can find it at bit.ly forward slash African special. That's bit.ly forward slash African special in one word. I'm also looking for a sponsor for this adventure and for the show in general. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, then drop me a line at hello at anitaposch.com and I will send you more information about the sponsorship opportunities. Thank you. So, okay, let's start into 2020 with an interview with an engineer and developer from Blockstream. It's Lisa Nagert. We met at the Lightning Conference in Berlin in October and talked about a variety of topics ranging from quantum experiments, stocks as currency, Bitcoin in general, to the future of the Lightning Network. For people who want to start a career in programming and technology, listen to her story of how she got hired as a Lightning developer without fitting the job profile. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. As always, you can find all recommendations and links mentioned in this episode in the show notes on the episode page at bitcoinandco.com. There you can also find a books page with reading recommendations from my guests. And please subscribe to my show in your favorite podcast player or for my newsletter at anitaposch.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you also to the LTB network for listing my show on their platform. The Let's Talk Bitcoin network features other cool shows like Let's Talk Bitcoin with Andreas Antonopoulos and Adam Levine, What Bitcoin Did with Peter McCormack, the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, POV Crypto, The Tatiana Show and much, much more. Make sure to check them out on Twitter at the LTB network and follow them. Before we start, a message from my sponsors. If you want to be independent and secure your personal financial freedom with Bitcoin, you have to hold your own keys and must not use a custodial wallet. So if you're one of the people who thinks of investing in Bitcoin long term in the most easy way and who prefers not to use a hardware wallet because it has to be maintained, doing firmware updates and more, or you just want to gift someone Bitcoin, then the card wallet is for you. You'll get one Bitcoin address, you can send Bitcoin to it, and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. That's it. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House, which is also responsible for the Austrian passports, and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. Today I'm joined by Lisa Nakert. She's an engineer and developer at Blockstream working on Sea Lightning. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Anita. How's it going? Fine, thanks. Great that you take the time to be here today. Oh, yeah, good to be here. So please introduce yourself at the beginning. On Twitter, I found some links and self-description I find rather interesting. So you're not only a developer at Blockstream, I think you do work for yourself. Uh, like uh, Because there's one blog called basic bitch software uh yes these are i think they're more like side projects like hobbies i think than uh pro like projects but um uh yeah uh basic bitch is a blog where i blog about um kind of thoughts on software or just things that i think are funny or interesting um 
last year for Thanksgiving, I did a post on like a love letter to XOR. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's on Twitter. Like I tweet out all the articles and stuff. A lot of the content lately has been very Bitcoin focused for obvious reasons. But, mm -hmm. Yeah. But why did you choose to name Basic Pitch? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so that's a good question. <laughs> Um, so I used to work at Etsy a long time ago. I was an Android developer at Etsy. That was like my first software engineering job. And, um, this was like 2012 to 2014. And in that period, um, you know, Etsy is like a clothing and, um, kind of website. So at the office, you hear about what the common terms are. And I think around that time, Like being a basic bitch meant like, so I took it to mean like, you don't dress very fancy. You just like the plain basics. Um, you like, so it's like a category of things you could search for at Etsy. And I was like, you know, in terms of software, I kind of consider myself a basic bitch. Like I like programming in C. I'm not really a big fan of like the latest and greatest like things that come out. Like it kind of takes me a while to like decide to look into things. Um, so yeah, that's why that's where the name came oh, from. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, then you say I'm a content machine. Oh yeah. <laughs> What do you mean by that? I um so I really like I kind of like puns. It's not exactly a pun, but I like that it has like two different ways of reading it. Um, you can either read it as I am a content machine as in I produce content constantly. So I tweet a lot. So that's pretty true. Like I constantly have new things that I'm like saying or want to say on Twitter. Um, and then you can also read it as like content is in happy or quite satisfied. So describing yourself as a machine that is fairly satisfied. So, ah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> And you seem to be interested in physics and philosophy. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's another side project. Yeah, but that's a newer one. Yeah, that's it's more recent. I think the first post I put out on that was last November. So, um, yeah, that's like this kind of side project I have into. Um, it kind of has to do with basically looking at what we know about reality based on what we've learned through quantum what we've observed through quantum experiments. So taking very kind of well-known and um, well-established results from a kind of ground-level quantum experiment, such as the double-slit experiment, um, which if you're familiar with physics is... Um, uh, I'll have to think of how to explain it. Um, basically, it has to do with the action of electrons and particles at very at like the very small level. Um, they don't behave how they behave when we come up another level, if that makes sense. Things get, um, maybe you've heard of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle um, or like Schrodinger's cat, you know, is the cat alive or dead? We don't know until we look at it. Um, kind of like the sort of like, there's sort of this like, um, uh, like Einstein called some of the action of electrons at this level is spooky Anyway, so like that's like the background of like the sort of phenomenon that I'm curious about. And um, there's a really great book by a physicist named David Deutsch called The Fabric of Reality. And he touches on, this is actually where I got the idea from, he touches on um, a lot of different things, but he explains kind of the, um, the background with these experiments in the book. Um, and the thing that I thought after reading this book that was really interesting is like, I think there's things that we can take about the reality as we've observed through experiments. And um, I think that kind of applies to the way that we think about ethics and like philosophy and how we live our lives sort of thing. So the project is called, I'm calling it the Center for Quantum Rhetoric. Um, rhetoric being like the way we talk about things and quantum being kind of what it's based in. So it's talking about reality using things we've learned from, can pull away from quantum experiments. <laughs> okay. Is there also a connection to Bitcoin there? Uh, I don't think so, but um, it really has, like, thinking about being able to kind of describe things with this kind of, like, a vocabulary that's based in... Um, anyways, like, it hasn't necessarily given me... I don't think there's a direct link to Bitcoin, but I did do, like, a two-minute talk at SBC, like, they did... Um, They had lightning talks about how you could describe snarks, so like zero knowledge proofs, using kind of the language that I was, I've learned, I've kind of developed from this side project. 
just ah, don't. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Now we said something about Bitcoin. So how did you get into the Bitcoin space? I mean, what did you do before? What did you learn? Yeah. Um, so I've been, I was, so my first job as a software engineer was working at Etsy as an Android developer. So I came from, I come from like the mobile development world. Um, so I worked as a, I worked as a software Android developer for a good number of years. And then about two and a half years ago now, I decided I didn't want to do Android anymore. So I started kind of looking around new things, different things to do. Um, I ended up going to work for a small startup that was doing video conferencing. So competing with like Google meet or zoom, um, in San Francisco. So that was all in JavaScript doing react stuff, which is interesting. Um, and then I had, um, I had some good friends at square cash who I had met through doing Android because I go to Android conferences and talk. And so I had met some fun people working at square cash and decided that I wanted to go work there. Um, so I, you know, I interviewed and then got accepted to work on a backend team at Square Cash. And it just so happened that one of the teams that they needed engineers for was the Bitcoin team. So the Bitcoin product team. So that was like how I got into working on Bitcoin related software projects. Is this the company that does the cash app? Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, it's the cash app. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you didn't really choose to do it. I mean, it was not like uh, you read somewhere or you, somebody told you. You were like asked, do you want to go in this project or not? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And why did you choose to go into um, it? Well, so, I mean, I've, I've known about Bitcoin for a really long time. Um, I kind of played around. I didn't really understand i'm kind of weird in that like i'll hear about things and get really interested in them but sort of shy if that makes sense so it never really occurred to me to like that i could go look it up until i had a job where it was like oh here's how it works and someone could like explain it to me if that makes sense um so i i mean i i've known about bitcoin for a long time um i've been really you know, it's one of those things i would read other what other people had written about it but never went to look at like the primary sources for myself um i played around a little bit with um what is the ethereum <laughs> what is this <laughs> um <laughs> uh so me and a friend like uh, the summer before had spent some time reading the ethereum yellow paper i believe it was um, and playing around with like LLL, which is like an assembly style, um, language for Ethereum contracts. Um, anyway, so I kind of dabbled with some things that were, I wasn't like totally, oh, what is crypto? It was like, oh yeah, crypto. I would love to be a crypto engineer. That's so great that you have an opening on that team. I would love, so that, that was kind of. That was the. Yeah, that was yeah, that worked okay, out. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so. Did you inform yourself about Bitcoin, about the philosophy and the background from that moment on? Or did you just like code at the beginning? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, I think the first thing I really did when I started at Square was, well, one, I realized I really had no idea what was going on with like, so I was working on software that basically, you know, um, sends and receives Bitcoin stuff for on behalf of Square for its custodial. So like they do all the warehousing of Bitcoin at Square. So there's that software there. And then I didn't really work on that stuff. But um, there's also the like sending and receiving of Bitcoin, which is the majority of kind of the pipeline that we were responsible for. Um, and uh, I had no idea what it was doing because I didn't really understand how Bitcoin worked at a level. So the first thing I did when I got to Square is I read, um, I think is is it Andreas Antonopoulos's great book, Mastering Bitcoin? Um, and it was so interesting. It was just mind-bogglingly cool. Um, I was just like, like totally fell in love with how incredibly technically and um, just how in it's so well-engineered one, um, the level of like, uh, like there's just all these different puzzles that you had to solve in order to make Bitcoin work, if that makes sense, like Merkle trees, you know, it's a way of tightly compacting, uh, um, assuring that the transaction that you're looking at isn't a block, but in a really compact way. Um, just, yeah. Anyways, so there were just a lot of like really cool technical achievements that were packed into one really interesting project 
Um, and then the project's really cool on a bunch of different levels, like not just on like, so there's like the technical and cryptography um, kind of like accomplishments and technical achievements that I think are really baked into Bitcoin really well. Um, and I mean, Bitcoin maybe wasn't the first to do a lot of those things, but it did a really good job of bringing them together in a very cohesive way. Um, but there's also then like this whole other area of like game theory in terms of mining um, and like Nakamoto consensus is like pretty groundbreaking in terms of like, if you read it, so a few months after this, I read a textbook on distributed computing because I was like curious about, I don't know, how, what kinds of things people who do distributed computing talk about. Um, and if you read a textbook on distributed computing, they talk about consensus a lot. Consensus is a thing that when you have a bunch of computers that are trying to talk to each other, um, they need to reach fairly frequently. So your ability to use a computer that's dis distributed um, has a lot to do with, like your ability to be effective at that um, is really kind of centered around how good you are at getting all these computers to be on the same page, which is consensus, right? So you need everybody to be on the same page and all kind of understand that you're on the same page and then you can move forward. And there's a bunch of algorithms that this like branch of computer science called like distributed computing, um, that's kind of what they deal with, right? It's like, how do we get a whole bunch of computers to kind of acknowledge where we are in reality at the same time? And that's consensus. So we call that consensus. Um, but then Bitcoin is like kind of invented, I think, and I could totally be wrong with this. I'm not an expert in the history of distributed computing, but Nakamoto consensus isn't mentioned, wasn't mentioned in this textbook. And it's a fairly recent textbook, which is to say, like, that's a cool, new and exciting thing that is in Bitcoin and is a part, everyone who works in the Bitcoin space is really, um, you know, we're like so used to it, you don't even realize how cool it is. But as like a new person to this day, it's like, oh my gosh, this is all this cool stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I can confirm. I mean, that's exactly what happens when you like read all those material or see all those videos and then connect the dots. Because at the beginning, I was like helpless, you know, like, oh, this is this and this is there. And then you have mining and then you have wallets. Yeah. And what? how does it connect? And one day you think, oh, click you know you have this oh now i understand but then you realize you don't really understand because the next thing waits around the corner you know um and um yeah i think also it's a, a genius combination of things yeah i mean the search for digital money in that way was like 30 40 years started before that so um i think the great thing was connecting all those stuff yeah, right. And I mean, yeah, and I think it's totally true that Bitcoin sits on top of a lot of really amazing, you know, research that people did for a long time. Yeah. How many people are working at Square Crypto? Do you know that at the moment? Or so when you were there? I left about a year ago. I was I was not there for very long. I was only at Square Crypto for five months. Um, I ended up leaving because Blockstream offered me a job to work on Lightning and I didn't feel like that was something I could say no to. Um, uh, when I was there, so, um, Square Crypto is different than the Square Cash app team should make that distinction. Square Crypto got started after I had left. So they're new. So there's the Square Crypto project. Um, they don't work on Square Cash software. So anyway, sorry, just like, um, so I was working in the Square Cash team. So Cash apps, like software team. When I was there, the whole project had maybe 70 engineers. Um, so that's like the entire Square Cash app, like the app and the back end and everything. Um, and then the people that were actually working on the Bitcoin part of it were probably like less than 10. Okay. So, and then Blockstream offered you to work on the Sea Lightning or on the Lightning project. Yeah. Um, why did that, be, <laughs> What? why was it so interesting for you? Um Yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I don't, hmm, I don't really remember. I know that people, I didn't really know that much about the Lightning Project. Um, I knew what it was. I understood the problem it was trying to solve. Like the scaling problem seemed really difficult. Um, 
it seemed like the cool new thing that people in Bitcoin were talking about. So I was really interested in learning. It was like, oh, I'm really interested in learning more about this. Um, I had started trying to spend my spare time working on it. Um, not working on it, but like learning about it, like installing a node and getting it set up and stuff. Um, but um, it kind of like the opportunity to work at Blockstream wasn't something I was looking for. It kind of like found me. Um, so... I was like, oh, yes, I do want to learn about, like, get into Lightning and contribute to this space. Um, this seems like a good opportunity, too. And did they find you over your tweets or how? No. So I actually emailed Rusty about something totally unrelated. So I started working at Square, and within the first month, um, and I read this book by Andreas, and in the book I realized that Bitcoin has a um, time bug, like a time rollover bug in the header, um, and it's not like I was the first person to notice this. Um, this is a problem if you're not familiar. Bitcoin's blocks have a header. Um, and the header is, um, is the header part of the hash? I think the header is part of the hash. Um, anyways, one of the fields is an unsigned 32-bit timestamp, which is totally fine. At first, if it was a signed timestamp, we'd have a bigger problem because the signed timestamps roll over in 2038. So are you familiar with the Unix epoch problem? Okay, no. <laughs> let me give a little bit mm -hmm. of background here. Um, probably the most, so there's a historical history to these. If you've heard of the Y2K bug, um, the problem with the Y2K bug was that a lot of time fields in computers for the Y2K bug specifically were only programmed to be two digits. Because you have 1998, 1999, we just kept the 9 and the 8, or the 99. And then when it got to 2000, it was going to roll to 00, which if you only kept two digits, you thought was 1900 instead of 2000. So everyone had to go in and change all their software so that the field that you understood, you held the information for what date it was, was larger, so that we knew it was 2000 and not 1900. Um There's a similar problem in a lot of software today that no one talks about. It's about uh, 20 years away. It's the Unix epoch. So a lot of timestamps in computers are based on kind of 1970, January 1st. And it's the second sense, January 1st, 1970, which is the Unix epoch. Like That's when it starts. Um, and then it's the count of seconds. If you're storing, so it depends on where you store that number of seconds. If you put it into a field in the computer that's only four bytes, so 32 bits, and it's a signed integer, which means you lose a bit, so it's actually 31 bits of data. Sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> like, uh, so if you basically, it's going to roll over sometime in 2038. Mm -hmm. So all of your all of your software will think that it's back to January 1st, 1970, mm -hmm. in the year 2038. Bitcoin does not have this problem. I thought it might. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. So you like 20 years and then your block headers are all completely screwed over. Um, but no, it turns out that it's an unsigned field, which means they have an extra times two of whatever. So it won't actually happen until 21 something. So we have over 100 years till this happens. But actually, that question was like an application for Blockstream for you. Well, it was really, and so, so I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is like, there's no time pressure to change this. It's not an immediate pressing problem. Um, this is a really good opportunity to look and see what it would be like to like do a BIP, if that makes sense. Like, what's the process for changing Bitcoin? So that was like my entry point into like, oh, let me like see what you know, what is the process of like getting a change request through Bitcoin? So I like started reading a bunch of BIPs, specifically ones that had to do with like changing the header. Um, I read all of the footnotes in the Nakamoto paper, um, like the Bitcoin paper. There's like a couple of them that deal with time. So I like went and looked up those. I was like, oh, maybe this is related. Um, they weren't really, but I learned what a time chain was. So that was fun. Um, And then I ended up like finding one BIP that I thought was like pretty um, sort of relevant. It had to do with changing like version headers, which now if I went and looked back at it, I might not think it was related. But at the time, not knowing any better, I was like, this kind of looks like sort of related. I'm going to email one of the people who's listed as an author of this BIP 
and just send them my thoughts on this problem. Just be like, hey, like, here's what I noticed. Here's my thoughts. What do you think? Is this worth looking into? Um, and the person that I just, there were three people listed. One of them was Peter Todd. One of them was Rusty. And one of them, I don't remember who the third person was. Um, and for whatever reason, I like, I Googled them all because I'm totally a stalker. Um, and as I Googled, like, you know, you can type in people's email addresses into Google and it will bring up information on them. So I definitely did that. And I found Rusty's blog and I liked his blog. I thought it was like very reasonable. I was like, oh, I can like send this person an email. Um, so I, I emailed Rusty, like this long email. And I did this right like the first month of starting work at Square on the Bitcoin team. Um, and then I totally forgot about it. And like, you know, I kind of spent some time looking, like I read through the Bitcoin source code and kind of found all the places that timestamps were noted and kind of had a general idea of what I would need to change sort of. Um, but then I got really busy with learning Square's code base, um, you know, cause I was like new and didn't really have a lot of time to do all these things. So I kind of forgot about it, honestly. And then three months later, I got an email back from Rusty and he was like, Hey, great question. Let me put you in touch with Peter Willa, like who also has this other bit, which is sort of related. And I'm like, oh, great. So then I'm emailing Rusty and Peter like, hey, yeah, okay. And like Peter's like, look at this thing. And then I'm like, I was like, okay, sure. Like, let me, you know, check the project out and write some tests or whatever to test these things that I think whatever, which I did not do. I don't really know C++, but I was like, yeah, I can totally write some tests for this and like do some investigation. Let me get back to you. I didn't actually anyways yeah but um but rusty was like oh hey by the way we're hiring for a lightning developer are you interested in applying and i was like no i just started a new job like i really like my job um i'm not really looking at moving jobs and he was like okay well it just apply and then you know, and I was like, okay, fine. Like, I will let you tell me no. That's like, I, I don't meet any of your requirements. Like, I don't know C. I, I didn't do a computer science background. Like, I've done a lot of reading and taken some classes on like algorithm design and stuff. But, um, you know, like, yeah, I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't fit your profile, but I will apply. Um, and they ended up, I guess, I don't know, I guess I did a good job through the interview. So they were like, we'd like, you know, so then they offered me a job and I was like, okay, well, no, I guess I have to take this now. <laughs> okay. And when did you start? I started at Blockstream last September. So I've been there just a year now. Mm -hmm. And then did you have to learn all the stuff like C yeah. and so on? And do you like it now? Oh, I love it. Ah. Oh, it's so much fun. Oh my God, I'm having so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But you also work uh, from home, so you don't have to go there somewhere yeah. yeah i work from home mm -hmm. um i was out in mountain view for a while i actually moved to texas a few months ago um but there's a we have a mountain view office so i'd go into the office a few times a week so it wasn't totally work from home now it is fully work from home and i feel a lot more productive and you're in a team with christian decker yeah i did a german podcast with him also in the last month oh, cool. yeah and um I mean, coming back to Bitcoin, uh, last question, what is the feature you're interested in most about, like the, the property of Bitcoin? I mean, we have some, uh, you know, there are people who are more interested in investing, others in solving human rights problems. Yeah. So my, the thing that got me into Bitcoin and that made me really interested in it is kind of what I was talking about earlier about how brilliant and genius it is as a technical engineering feat. Um, so that was definitely one of the reasons that I wanted to work on it is because I was just really impressed by it. Um, the, I think from like a more philosophical perspective, I have, it's something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of like, what does it mean for society that Bitcoin is a thing? Um, I think it is really important that we have digital cash that is like anonymous. That feels like a really important thing for us as people and digital natives to have at our like to have available. So like, I think that it's a really important project in terms of like human, like not even like human rights in the abstract, but just like two people in the corner want to like exchange money or like trade with each other. They should be able to do that 
without necessarily having to invoke like a bank or a third party or, you know, like cash, like people should be able to like make deals between themselves. Um, I think that's an important thing to preserve. And I think, I think Bitcoin is a really important part of the story of being able to like have that for people. Does that make sense? Um, on other levels, like it, I'm not really sure what I think about Bitcoin. Like when I think about it from like, there's like, there's so many layers to it. Like you can also think of it from like a investing and store of value perspective, which is really fascinating. Like, um, that's actually like a whole really interesting, um, what is it? What would I say? Like learning about, it wasn't learning about Bitcoin so much, but lately, I don't know. I kind of had this like phase where I was like tweeting a lot about tokens, um, which being a, um, employee of Blockstream, a lot of the people that I interact with on a day to day basis are very into Bitcoin. Like it's like, there's not a lot of discussion about any of the alternative or other projects that are also crypto stuff. So, um, but I got really interested in like a friend of mine sent me some stuff about another project called Helium, which is um, it's doing it's trying to like basically um, make a long range like long range Wi-Fi project so people can have these um, routers at their houses and then the whole city if enough people have them they talk to each other in the city. Um, so then you get like a citywide communication network that's kind of like 4G, except it's run by people who own these hotspots in their houses instead of like big telecom companies. Um, anyways, all this to say, I got really interested in how other tokens work. So that project uses tokens. Yeah, they have their own currency. Because like, well, I don't know if I call it a currency, but you like some of these projects like so this one in specific it, it has its own like helium token um which you need in order to like assign like oh this person needs a thing so they're gonna pay you tokens as a reward like it's exchange right like you need something to like kind of keep track of the exchange anyways they have a token but i got really interested in tokens and like decentralized finance which i had no idea what the heck that meant um, but then it's like, oh, this is really interesting. Anyway, so all of that, like, anyways, all this is to say that by learning about how all of these like different crypto systems work and tokens and stuff, I really appreciate what a better understanding it's given me of how like U.S. government dollar monetary policy works. Like, this has been something that's been interesting to me for a long time, but I never really understood. I just didn't get when people like monetary policy or quantitative easing or all these like buzzwords that you hear. It's just like, I was like, I just don't understand what's going on. Like, what do they mean? Like, I get the balance sheet is growing in this, but what does that like mean? Like what's happened? What's like, what's actually happening here? Um, but so anyways, so like, I really like that learning about Bitcoin. So this is like a whole nother level of Bitcoin, right? Which is like totally unrelated to like Merkle trees and cryptography and how transactions are like done and what your like flow through of total number of transactions per second is of a system, like totally different question, right? Like, um, this is like, how do, how do governments send and like move money around and like, what is a monetary system? Um, but it's really fun. because like, I feel like I have a much better understanding of how that works And that's all because of like learning about how cryptocurrencies work, sort of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here. Um, so what's the Lightning Network in easy words? Oh, yeah. Oh, Lightning Network is so cool. Um, so I think network is like the right way to think about it, right? Um, it's, and so like, remember a few minutes ago, I was talking about these helium hotspots and the idea is that like a bunch of people will buy like a hotspot and they'll put it in their house and then since these people are all located kind of close to each other, the hotspots talk to each other and send data around. So if you have like a smart scooter or like, you know, these scooter rental companies that are here, they're in Berlin, they're in, you know, San Francisco, New York, um, instead of talking to like, anyway, so then like someone wants to, a scooter wants to like talk to another scooter or whatever, um, it would go through this network of routers, right, that people have in their homes. So the Lightning Network is very similar in that, not that um, it uses like um, a, wifi, a new Wi-Fi kind of protocol, but 
Um, it uses basically, you know, we're still on the internet, so we're still sending each other information over the internet. But the idea is that a bunch of people start and run a lightning node and they connect them together uh, through channels. So kind of create your own new network. Um, but instead of being over Wi-Fi, it's through these channels that a bunch of individuals and people have created um, with their own like at-home lightning node that they're running. Um, and then someone gets on the channel and wants to send money, you know, from here all the way to the other side of the city. Um, instead of having to be directly connected to the person, they can kind of route themselves through all these other people um, on the Lightning Network to find a route to get to the person they want to pay. Um, so it's very decentralized, right? Because you're not sending it to a central server to send the money. You're routing it through a network of people that have these um, Lightning nodes in their homes or like, you know, closet, basement, like a server thing. Um, but it gives you... So then the idea is that a lot of people get on Lightning and connect to each other and then if you want to send someone money on Lightning, you just have to connect to one person on the network and you can send money to like anyone, which is kind of, I think, the general high level. Yeah, but what's the purpose? Why do we need oh, it? Yes, right. So why do we need this? Great question. Oh, and so what's cool about it is that the money that you're sending, um, the money that you're sending people is, um, is Bitcoin. So you're exchanging Bitcoin. Um, and that, I think, is the important, um, the important part in terms of why we need it, because it lets a lot of people send and receive Bitcoin transactions um, without having to go through the block process. Um, so for those of you who aren't super familiar with how Bitcoin transactions work, there's a limit to the number of transactions that can be processed in like every every block. So um, let's say for the sake of example, you can only really fit 2,000 transactions in a block. Well, Bitcoin is set up so that a new block only happens every 10 minutes. So that means there's, what, 200 transactions a minute? So if everyone wanted to use Bitcoin, we wouldn't be able to use the existing Bitcoin protocol. We need something else. The idea is it was lightning since you're all just kind of talking to each other and we don't have to... You'll you notice I didn't mention anything about the blockchain in my example. Um, the idea is that you'll be able to exchange Bitcoin with each other without having to put it on the blockchain necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a privacy improvement. It's a big privacy improvement, I think. Because at the moment, Bitcoin is only pseudonymous. So um, you can track payments or transactions. But with the Lightning Network, you can't track anything anymore? Ideally, yes. You can't track payments with Lightning. I think that there are a few cases where if someone really, really, really wanted to track your specific payments, they're might be ways to do it, but it would have to be a very, um, have to be very targeted on you. Um, but yes, there is no central record of Lightning transactions. So when you send a transaction, the only people that might see it are the people along the path that you send that payment to get to whoever you're paying. Um, so it is, yes, it's a lot harder to see where Lightning payments are going. It's not like you can pull out the blockchain and look at the list. Um, and there's no real historical record of them either. So once you send a payment, um, the only proof that you have that you paid it is your invoice, really. Okay. And it's uh, for small payments as well, because on the Bitcoin blockchain, the transaction fees might be so high in the future that you can't do micropayments. Right. Yeah. Right. So, right. Exactly. So Lightning works really well for small, small mm -hmm. payments. But what if like the Lightning uh, Network is going to be used very often and uh, yeah, uh, will the fees also rise? This is a good question. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what the fees are going to do on Bitcoin. Um, I think that to a certain extent, the fee cost is going to be, hopefully is tied to how much it actually costs the person who's routing that to send the payment. Um which is kind of, there's like a lot of different things to go into that. It's very cheap right now for the most part. Um, but at some point you are going to have to, anyways, you're basically, yeah, they're very cheap right now. Okay. I think Rusty wants people to raise, I think the idea is that he thinks that it's going to get more expensive on Lightning, but right now it's very inexpensive. But I, I don't actually, 
I'm not really good on details. This is not a detail. I know exactly how much it yeah, costs right now. No, no problem. Yeah. Um, your talk at the Lightning Conference in Berlin is called Lightning Times Liquidity or yeah. Lightning. Yeah. Uh, what is it going to be about? Oh, yeah. Um, so I actually, the conference organizers asked me to send in a tagline so that it would be more obvious. Um, I think the tagline I came up with was a finance, so lightning X liquidity, a financier's, a financier's guide to Bitcoin staking. So, um, the general idea of the talk is that, so as I was talking about earlier, I learned a lot kind of about how monetary systems work while I was kind of just exploring what other tokens, how other tokens work. Um, and it kind of gave me this really interesting perspective on what it means to be a financier. Like what, it, what does it mean to use money and to make more money with it? Like, what does it mean to have capital and put your capital to work? If that makes sense. Like, um, anyways, so the idea of the talk is to one kind of go through this process, like of thinking about money in terms of work value um, and then talk about different ways that we currently use our money to work for us. Um, and then how that necessarily applies to lightning. Um, and then hopefully I'll also get to talk about some of the projects I've been working on, on lightning, um, and kind of how that all fits in to like how they all fit together. Mm -hmm. Because as far as I understand, if you are a lightning node provider, Yeah. You have to fund the channels mm -hmm. with your own Bitcoin. So that would be the staking. Yes. And then you, well, you, yeah. no? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In a way, maybe. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and then you can earn transaction fees because yeah. you are doing the work as a lightning node. Right. Exactly. So this is what, when you were asking about how much does it cost to send a payment? Um, this was the thing that I like, was thinking, but didn't want to get into because it is kind of more of a discussion but now that we brought it up i think this is a good place to kind of like briefly go over it um the uh the right so it's called like the cost of capital right so in order to have a lightning channel people put their money into a channel um and we the lightning network needs people to have money in lightning channels because that's how payments get sent Like you need that liquidity, the availability. Liquidity means like availability of ready money to like, you know, like it's available. That's liquid. Um, so that's like a, a well-functioning lightning network though will have the liquidity in the places that it's required. So like if I run a store, let's say, you know, I run like a sticker shop on lightning, um, I'm going to need money coming into me. Like I'm going to constantly be needing to pull money towards me, right? So I'm going to have a constant need to have liquidity in my direction, right? Um, anyways, so people need to be able to understand kind of where the good places to put their capital, one. So I think as, um, as a network, there's things we can do to help people figure out what their capital is worth, Um And it's, we, we want it to be, it's, it's going to be worth more when you're putting it in places where it gets used. So having a channel that's set up such that is useful to people, like it's in a place that a lot of payments get sent through, for example, um, like that will, you'll return more money on it, but that's because it's actually serving a purpose, right? So um, I think what we do, Lightning does need people to have, their money in lightning channels. Um, but we really need that. We don't just need like a whole bunch of big channels. We need channels where people are going to be sending money to each other. If that mm -hmm, makes sense. Mm -hmm. But how reckless do these investors have to be today? Um, I think that's, so the recklessness I think comes from the fact that all the money in channels is hot, right? So it's not like it's in a cold wallet. So any money in a lightning wallet is like hot money, which means what does it mean for Bitcoins to be hot? Um, it means that they are, um, the secret key for them is on a computer that is connected to the internet in some way. So every lightning channel funds by definition is a hot wallet, right? Okay. Um, so yeah, I think, so that's, I think that's one of the risks. The other risks is that the, um, There's like, uh, you know, there's like software on top of that that's managing your money semi-automatically in terms of like if 
if something happens, you have to close the channel. You're trusting that your lightning node will close it to the correct place at the right time. And then you'll get money back. Um, and so I would say it's not riskless. Um, but anytime that there's a risk, and again, this is like the whole, and this is why my talk is like thinking like a financier, right? Um, anytime that there's a risk, you should be asking, what are you getting back for the risk that you're taking? Right. Um, and I think in a lot of ways with lightning, um, there's, if your capital is deployed in, in, you know, useful places, you'll earn some money back through like routing fees and stuff. Um, but the other side of it is that you're also helping to build a network that like part of the reward of participating in lightning network is that, um, you can send anonymous payments with Bitcoin, right? Like there's, there's more rewards than just like the monetary ones necessarily. What do you think? Where are we going from here? I mean, like, let's say in a half year or in a year. For lightning? For lightning, yeah. Um, I think that's a good question. I think that, so the project I've been working on is something called like uh, dual funding, um, which means that hopefully, so right now, I think one of the problems on that makes lightning hard to use is that it's hard to find liquidity going in the right direction. So if I need to send a payment, um, and part of the reason for that is like a technical choice that was made early on in terms of, um, when you open a channel, only one side has the opportunity to put money in it. Um, so the protocol change I've been working on for the last couple months is the ability for both channels for both peers to put money in the channel to start so it starts more equal so money can move either way through the channel instead of one way like at the start um so i think that that's really going to help us um make channels kind of make it easier to send payments more quickly um so that's one thing i think it's going to be easier to send payments um it's still easy to send payments now but i think you have to do a little work to find a good channel or like maybe open a channel to get the payment you want done. And hopefully that will go away. Um, hopefully we'll see. Um, there's been a lot of interesting stuff around invoices and um, new ways of sending like, um, like onions. So there's a lot of new um, technical developments that we're adding to like the onion packets. So those are the packets that contain the actual payment data. Um, that route the money through the network. Um, we've recently changed it so that we can experiment a lot more with what gets sent down down through those payments. So I think that um, the kinds of payments that happen are going to change. Maybe not super obvious to people using it, but hopefully that'll be good. Um, and then what was the other thing? Uh, I don't remember, but yeah, so I think it's going to get easier to pay people. Um, and I think that the number of different kinds of payments and ways you can pay people are going to like get better feature wise. Mm -hmm. Do you also think that there will be more wallets that combine Bitcoin and lightning in one wallet? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you can already see that happening, right? Like I think Electrum is working on a, a lightning integration, um, Are there other uh, projects uh, that you see uh, from your perspective that are interesting? Interesting lightning projects. Um, so my thing is like, so the, the use case of lightning that I really want to see take off um, is like people with using vendors, like so vendor people who like you run a shop, you accept lightning payments. Like that's the thing I want to see more of. And I think that that's like, going to be really big in terms of, I don't know, I think it's just important to have those people, participants in the network. So um, I think BTC Pay does some of that. I could be wrong about this. I'm not. BTC Pay server has an implementation for web shops, I think. Yeah. yeah. Did they do, so this is where I'm like, I don't know if they do Lightning. They do Lightning. Ah, right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Right. This is where I'm like, ah, I'd like to see more of those things, but I don't know who does them now. I know OpenNode is working on this problem. So I really hope that they're quite successful. Um, yeah. But why do you think that something like that would be more successful than Libra, for instance? I mean, if it ever mm. will be launched, but... Yeah, no, this is a good question. So I think Libra has a lot of advantages in terms of... So, I mean, when you're a shop and you're going through setting up, depending on, depending on how hard it is to add it, um, you want people to be able to send you money, Right online easily and quickly. Um, 
So part of what deciding what payment options you decide to accept has to do with how people want to pay you. Um, I think that having a lot of people that like want to pay in Bitcoin, um, and then like, if you like, you know, I would love to people to pay me for things in Bitcoin. Right. So of course I would want a shop that accepts lightning because I want to be able to receive Bitcoin payments. Um, so I think that in terms of like, why would people go for Bitcoin over Libra? I think part of it's going to be, well, I'd rather have the Bitcoin than the Libra. I think that's going to be a big part of it. The other thing is like, how easy is it for a shop to add that? You know, is it one button click? Is it like, how much effort do they have to go to? Um, the nice thing about Libra or Libra in theory, the nice thing about Libra is that, um, it gets to piggyback on Facebook's extensive reach, right? So, I think Facebook is probably one of the most prevalent apps on people's cell phones, like just in terms of mobile reach, right? So they've already overcome this enormous barrier in terms of just getting people to get the software on their phone. And since, you know, your mobile phone updates its apps pretty much automatically, Facebook's distribution network for any kind of... um wallet software that they ship, as long as they bundle it inside of Messenger or the Facebook app, it's instantly on millions of phones, maybe even billions of, probably billions of phones around the world in like two seconds. So if I'm a shopkeeper and you're like, hey, would you like to integrate with Libra? There are two billion people that have this wallet software already on their phones. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good argument, like for supporting it, right? So, um, yeah, I think that Facebook has a huge advantage in terms of distribution in that way, but um, yeah, I don't know. But we are, what's your personal thoughts about Libra? Um, my personal thoughts about Libra. So I tweeted a few days ago that I, I actually do think that Libra would be good for Bitcoin. Um, and my reasoning for that is that I think that, well, okay, so so I think that so when you're thinking about like Bitcoin, so it depends on what you de like define as good for Bitcoin, right? Um, and what you mean by good for Bitcoin, good for Bitcoin in terms of being a standard that everyone uses and adopts and like a currency that is used by people. Do you mean good for the stock price or the, the price of Bitcoin? These are different things, right? Um, so when I say good for Bitcoin, I mean, I think it'll be good in terms of getting people to use it like a usage standpoint. Um, and the reason for that is that I think that um, it normalizes the idea of not using a credit card to pay for things online. I think that it, I think that the more people we can get used to using digital currency as like a thing that you use on a date, like this is your wallet, this is your balance. Um, I don't know, maybe it, I'm wrong. And about it's that. not fiat currency. And it's not fiat currency. And you get used to that. And you get used to the like, oh, I have to exchange it between US dollars and whatever. And it's like you're used to the, oh, like I got 10 Libras today. I'll get, you know, I'll send you two Libras tomorrow, whatever. Like, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of like these friction points that are like not necessarily unique to just Bitcoin. It's like to every currency that's not. US dollars that we want people to, or people, we want people to start using. I don't want people is the right term there, but like <laughs> assume that at some point people will start using in the future. Um, so I think that like the more familiarity and the more projects and the more reach that you kind of just get people used to those kinds of things and just fam it's familiarity. Hmm. Um, so I think that, so I think the familiarity with like, uh, how to use cryptocurrency is good. And even if like, I mean, if you think about it in terms of percentages, right, let's say that, um, let's say that a billion people start using Libra. Great for Facebook, probably terrible for any other like currency system, which now has to like kind of compete with anyways. Um, and then like, let's say only like 0.1% of those people then become interested in the wider world of like, crypto like wallets and stuff and different kinds of currencies that's still a huge number of people mm, like yeah. yeah i don't know yeah and on, on the other hand we see that uh, central banks i think uh feel a little bit pressure now with libra because facebook is such a power you know has such so much power that central banks and nation states start to build their own stuff 
So then we have like three kinds of money. Is this something that you, uh, you I mean, this is a good idea? I don't know. Yeah. I honestly don't know. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on like currency systems because it's something I find interesting. And I just recently finished, well, I didn't finish, but like um, there's a couple of really good chapters on um, monet, like currency systems that went totally haywire and fell apart. It's this really old book by someone called Charles Mackey called like, um, was it the extraordinary madness of crowds or something? Um, but he talks about like the French, the French currency system blew up in like the early 1800s. And then he talks about tulip mania in, um, the Netherlands. in the Netherlands. And then there's another chapter on, what was the third? I, was, I just read the first hundred pages. Um, one on England, like a, the Bank of England has like a big problem with the South Sea bubble. Talks about South Sea bubbles. Anyways, the um, it's, it's interesting to see like when do currencies fail, right? Like why do these things stop working? And it seems like the kind of general, the general thing across all of them. And this we've seen this happen with stock companies too. So I also just finished reading the book about Enron which was a big oil company that blew up a few years ago, kind of spectacularly in like 2000, 2001. Um, and then we just saw WeWork in the United States kind of implode. And um, anyways, these things all have stuff in common. And the thing in common is that they tend to issue a lot more currency than they have value behind it, if that makes sense. So I think that, Currency projects are interesting. I think they all tend to fail in like the exact same way. Um, and the exact same way that they fail is that there's really no, there's like nothing valuable behind them. Um, so I think that like, it's cool to see innovation in the currency space. I think that's good. Um, I think that having a bunch of different currencies and exchange rates is actually good for, um, well, in depend. It has downsides too, but I think it, it can be really good at sparking um, new industries and businesses. And that's kind of related to this other economic stuff that I'm really into. But um, anyways, I think that all these crypto, I think all these new currency projects are interesting and cool. And I think it's good that there's a diverse number of them. Um, I think that the centralized control of them is like, kind of something that's hard to get away from in terms of currency systems. Um, so again, I think that's why Bitcoin is particularly cool is because it's not centralized and it's been fairly successful at getting, um, getting and keeping like its value, if that makes sense. Like, um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, many people will say, but it doesn't keep its value because it's so volatile and stuff. But in the end, I mean, if you look from 2010, 11 to now, then it has not lost its value. Yeah, and I mean, like, so I was talking about all these problems, like all these things that kind of failed, right? Like the mm -hmm. the tulip bubble and the, well, tulip bubble, not so much. But um, like, so like WeWork is a good example. And Enron, a lot of the problem with, a lot of the problem, especially with Enron, is that they kept bringing in new money and the way that they convinced more money they came in is by handing out more stock. So if you think of the currency stock, well, if you think of Enron stock as a currency, they just kept printing more Enron currency and using that as a, a way to get more capital for projects, promising that in the future they would invest it in things and these things would pay off and then they'd be able to pay back their debt plus more. Um, and so I think that a lot, so kind of all to say that like that's inflation, right? When you just start printing more Enron stock, to hand out to people in exchange for money, um, you get into trouble. Um, and Bitcoin is hard to do it that with. So Yeah, and that's actually what quantitative easing is, no? Like printing more money mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll see how how did this goes. Um yeah. now you were you were talking about a book. Do you have maybe other uh, reading or, or video recommendations for our listeners about Bitcoin or Lightning? Yeah. Um so I, I'm not really, so there's a, okay, so my favorite Bitcoin book, and I even send it to my mom to read, um, is definitely Andreas's Mastering Bitcoin. Um, you sent it to your mom? Yeah, I sent it to and my did mom. You, did you read it? She read it, yeah. Okay. She, so she got a 
computer science degree in like the 80s so is she like you know she's like very familiar with um like hashes and like oh how do you you know like basically it's like i mean it's basically a wire protocol right so she's like oh yeah i get this um Uh she was not impressed i should say she was not impressed not impressed um (laughs) Why? why not I don't know. I think that has more to do with like our relationship than like how cool Bitcoin is. Oh, okay. But, um, I understand. Yeah. Yes, that was like that would definitely be my my number one recommendation if you're interested in how Bitcoin works. Um in terms of lightning, I don't really think there's anything really great in terms of books on lightning yet. Um I know that Andreas and Lalu from Lightning Labs have started a project to write a lightning book. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, I checked in on it a few days ago just to kind of see what they had up so far. Um, and we have like maybe one chapter done and like half of a, like a, a skeleton of a second. So I think that's in progress and it'll be a couple more months before it comes out. But um, a lot of people are like, oh, maybe go read the white paper. Um, I found the white paper really cool and interesting, but also really difficult to read. Um the lightning bolts are okay. They're pretty good. Um, yeah, I think it depends on what, depending on what level of interest you have in how it works. Like, um, Rusty has annotated the C lightning code base in a way that is supposed to be kind of like a story, sort of. It's more about learning how C lightning works and necessarily how lightning as a protocol works. But I think you kind of get a decent idea of kind of what the parts are. Um, so if you're interested in exploring lightning through a project, um, I think it's in, I think if you read like the, somewhere in the documentation and see lightning, it tells you how to start and where that is. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And uh, where can people find your, you as a content machine? You said you're on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter. I tweet at um, nifty nye, so that's nifty and then N-E-I. Mm-hmm. And any other resources uh, of you? Uh, for me, um, I also run a Sea Lightning um, fan account. Ah, I've seen that on Twitch. Oh, oh, I forgot about Twitch. Yes, I do the Twitch thing. Actually, I was supposed to do that. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that was a question I had. I mean, your your life coding. Oh yeah, I forget. What, yeah, what, I do that what, twice a week. What are you doing there? Is this for other people to to learn, or also to get recommendations, or what? Why did- uh, so all it is is me working on Sea Lightning but I record my screen while I do it and kind of attempt as best I can to narrate what I'm doing. Or if I find something interesting, I'll stop and explain it. Um, I started to do it sort of as like, since I'm working from home, it like keeps me like, I have someone to talk to. I mean, it's myself, but it's also like the audience. Um, I also think it's like really fun to kind of show off what I'm doing. Um, it's never really a thing really interesting. I think one time I like deleted a whole directory and then had to like go. So like, it's not, it's not scripted. I don't plan it. Um, I usually stream for about an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, but, but I've seen, I was there like for two or three minutes the other day okay. and I've seen like five or six other people. Yeah. And so just hanging out, just hanging out exactly. Yeah. And looking at, at your working. Yeah. yeah. Fun. It's really fun for me because I'm, you know, back in the days when I was young, we didn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think like, I think part of the, so part of the reason for doing it is that I, one, I hope people can, like, I, I, I learn a lot by watching other people work on things. So I'm hoping that this will be an opportunity for people to see Like, what commands do I run? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great in general for people who have no idea what's behind all those stuff, yeah? To see people working on code and what it is and that you can explain things, you know, because then it gets, you you get a grip or or a feeling. It doesn't feel so, like you have a a concrete idea of what it is instead of just like, oh, I don't know what that is, yeah. So was this maybe also a reason for you to get into uh, software development that your mother has done something like that? No. No. Okay. Even the opposite, more the opposite. Right? <laughs> For a long time, she didn't understand that I worked on software. That sounds weird because I didn't go to school for software engineering. And as a kid, I didn't really, I don't think my mom really understood me as a human, as being an engineer. That, that sounds weird. But like, I just didn't really, I didn't start programming until I was in my twenties. So as a kid, 20 years of growing up, my mom didn't really, her understanding of me didn't see any of that, if that makes sense. So 
you know, I'd be working as like an Android engineer to be like, what do you do for Etsy again? <laughs> like, okay. Anyways. So. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. That was great. It was a really nice chat with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on the Lightning Conference and at other occasions, I hope. Cool. Thank you, Anita. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you want to support my African journey, then please donate to it on my Telecoin page. You can find it at bit.ly forward slash African special. That's bit dot l y forward slash african special in one word thanks to my sponsors coinfinity and their card wallet you can get 20% off at cardwallet.com forward slash anita and as always this is a podcast not financial advice please do your own research if you like my show please subscribe to it in your podcast player and share the episode on social media You can find all links that were mentioned in the show notes on the website or in your podcast player. If you are in the mood for a donation, feel free to tip me at tippinme at Anita Posh. You can contact me also on Twitter, LinkedIn or YouTube. Goodbye from Vienna of Wiederhören. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>